Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week in the kick, the story behind the man with the most intriguing finish line photo from the Boston Marathon, and a super fast winning time at the London Marathon. But first, my conversation with Olympic marathoner Shalane Flanagan. I spoke to Shalane at our Runner's World pop-up store on Boylston Street in Boston the morning before the marathon. She didn't run the race this year because she injured herself over the winter. In front of a live audience with lots of cameras going off, she spoke to me about that injury, but also about the many exciting developments in her life, including becoming a foster mom to 17-year-old twin girls who are also runners. You know, we like to think we help them, but I think they help us more. They're incredible. They're they're attached at the hip. They finish each other's sentences. They're the cutest things, and they love love track. They think the 200s really long. So it's like everyone's like, "Oh, you guys got this running connection." I'm like, "Well, yeah, but like 200 is like far for them." But um, you know, I show up to the track meets, and I'm there, and I support them and cheer them on. They just ran in Eugene this weekend. They ran the four by 100, and they texted me as soon as they were finished, and they're like, "We're fifth in the state in the four by one." And so I'm like, right on, this is great. So we've had, we've had a blast. This was a great conversation. You'll really enjoy it. It's coming up. Thanks for joining us. Shalane Flanagan is a four-time Olympian. She ran the 5,000 meters in the 2004 games, the 10,000 in the 2008 games, and the marathon in both the 2012 and 2016 Olympics. So far, her only medal came in 2008 in Beijing, where she won bronze in the 10,000 meters. But, as you will soon hear, she's actually been upgraded to a silver medal in that event. The lead-up to her fourth Olympics was pretty dramatic. At the Olympic marathon trials in Los Angeles last year, Shalane suffered from severe dehydration. But her teammate and fellow competitor and friend, Amy Craig, helped her push through it. It wasn't until the final mile that Amy finally left Shalane's side to win the trials. Shalane held on for third, finishing behind Desiree Linden. She bounced back, however, and had a great race in Rio, where she finished sixth in 225-26. As if training for the Olympics weren't enough, Shalane also co-wrote her first book last year. It's called Run Fast, Eat Slow. She wrote it with her friend and former college teammate, Elise Kopecki. We talk about all of this and more in our conversation. And then Shalane took a bunch of great questions from the audience. And then after that, she indulged us in our version and our homage to the NPR quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We asked Shalane, as well as our chief running officer, Bart Yasso, and a member of the audience to compete to see who knows the most about the history of the Boston Marathon. So, Shalane Flanagan, Olympian, Olympic medalist, Boston marathoner, local girl, welcome back to Boston. This is the best weekend of the entire year, and Monday is my favorite day of the entire year, so I'm really happy to be here. I'm sad I'm not running, but I'm excited to be a cheerleader this weekend. Well, I didn't want to start off on too sad a note, but... (laughs) I mean, we kind of have to start there, right? You, you have never been shy about what this race means to you. You have said openly a couple of times that you aim to win this race in your career. You ran here a few years ago, and you basically set the pace for an incredible race. How does it, how does it feel to not be able to compete here, aside from the obvious, which is just disappointed? And, and yeah. why aren't you running? Tell us about your injury and how that happened. Um, yeah, so I grew up here, just 10 miles north of the city, and... I came in as a little kid and stood on the corner of Hereford and Boylston and cheered on all the runners, cheered on my father who ran the 100th running. Um, I distinctly remember Uta Pippig winning, and at that time I had just started running. And I ran the mile in physical ed class, and I believe I ran maybe about a 540 mile. And I remember someone telling me, though, that Uta Pippig was basically running faster than that for 26 miles my mind was blown. And I thought, this, this doesn't seem humanly possible, but I wanna try this someday. 
Um, and I progressed throughout my career to get to the point where I could actually show up here and was invited here to be an elite athlete. Um, but it all started just down that corner, down the road. Um, so it's been a goal and dream of mine to just get here. And now I've even set my sights higher, and that's to try to win the Boston Marathon. And not just for myself, but for the community that raised me. And I think what makes Boston so special is the people. I feel like there's an intimate connection when you're running on the roads from Hopkinton to Boston. The people that are out there supporting the runners inspire the runners. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. And the runners inspire the people that are standing alongside the road. So it's just a very meaningful race to me. It's more than just a race. I think it changes lives. It's changed my life. And so I'm determined to try to win this marathon someday. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but I'm paying my dues as a runner. And I have gone the majority of my career virtually unscathed and avoided the injury bug. But I have come down with a, a bad injury this January. Um, I live in Portland, Oregon because I'm sponsored by Nike and I train on Nike's campus. And we unfortunately got um, the snow apocalypse is what they call it. It was about a foot of snow, which here would be like no big deal. But in Portland, Oregon, um, they don't really have plows or de-icing methods. So um, the snow that um, arrived mid-January stuck for about two weeks and uh, the roads were pretty poor conditions. And I decided, well, I've got Boston, I'm still gonna train, right? Even when it's crummy out, we get out and we, we do our job and we put in the miles. And, um, but I think because of the, the poor roads conditions and a lot of treadmill running, uh, I suffered a fracture in my uh, low back, upper butt area. And um, so I'm recovering from that and I'm back running though, which is great. I was, my goal was to be back running by Boston Marathon weekend. Um, Cause it's so hard to be here and not run, right? <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so I'm healthy, and I'm sure I will leave very inspired after this weekend. So it was really disappointing for us to read about your injury, obviously, but also curious. I'd never really heard of an injury like this that was caused, you think, by the impact of partially being on the treadmill, but also partially the, the traction or the lack of traction out on the ice, right? So that caused a fracture in, in part of your spine or your pelvis? Um, yeah, so when people, like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, my God, she broke her right. back. Right. Like, that's terrible. I picture you in, like, a neck yeah. brace in a hospital bed So when bed people have been seeing me, they're like, can you walk? Like, can you breathe? I'm like, I'm fine. Um, it's an iliac crest fracture is what I suffered from. And we believe it was more of, like, an avulsion-type fracture where all the, these muscles that attach on this crest of your hip, it's... If this is your spine and then you have your sacrum, not that I studied any anatomy, but I've had to. Um, and then there's the crest. And if you grab like the side of your hips, just right near that uh, SI joint is where my fracture is. And um, it's all the tight muscles from compensating, from slipping out. Yeah, you, I'm sure a lot of people have slipped out on the snow and just kind of the traction is poor. And when I told my father that, you know, I think I fractured my back um, or this iliac crest and I told him what conditions I was running in um, over the phone. He's like, Shalane, you know this. You do not take Ferraris off-roading. He's like, why would you ever go run out in the snow like that? You know better. And um, so lesson learned. He's told me that for years. If any time I go off, you know, trying to be adventurous on trails, he's like, why would you do that? It's just not worth it. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's healed, um, but I do have to work on a lot of strengthening exercises, glute activation, um, a lot of things that I don't like to do. I hate, ha I had to get up an extra hour and a half before my run to do my drills so I could go run this morning, but it's a necessary part of the process. I actually wanted to ask you about that because I think the majority of runners probably don't spend the amount of time or energy on those kinds of things. And often when we get injured, it's when we learn how important they are. Have you had that experience? Have you been reminded how critical stuff like that is? And will you yeah. continue to do it going forward, do you think? Yeah, I'm reminded that I am human too, and I do have to do the little things. I've been very lucky that I've been able to just do my normal routine that my coaches give me and core routines and not really had to do much else outside of the normal program. But I think um, 
just as you put more miles on the body and maybe because I'm getting a little bit older, it's just I have to be pay more attention to the details. And um, But if that's the price I have to pay, getting up a little bit earlier and doing a half hour of glute activation and feeling my butt like, is it activated? I think it is. Like, um, It's very awkward in the gym when I'm like flexing my butt and I'm like, is it activated? I think so. Excuse me, sir. Yes, Can you help me, me out? Is, is it this activated? Does this look activated? <laughs> so, um, but it's worth it. It is. And um, I've learned from Meb. Meb has a very strict routine um, that he, he says as well. He's like, if you say we're going to meet at 7, that means I'm up at 5.30 doing my stretching and my routine. And in order to keep going in this sport, it's just all about the details. I mean, Tom Brady apparently is very much into the details at this age. And he's uh, very dedicated to his, um, his diet and the little things. As you age, it just becomes more important. So do you have any specific goals for this year, racing goals yet, or is it too soon? I do, but they've just been in here. They haven't been put on paper or even we talked about we with my no, coach it's yet. It's just us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Uh, I would love, I have a few bucket list races that I have never done. Like, I've never run Falmouth, and I've always wanted to. And so there's a few races over the summer that I would love to be healthy enough and competitive enough to line up and 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 get after, so. So I'm curious, what was the run that you did when you got to Boston the first time that you were able to run since the injury? Uh, of course, along the Charles, right? I had to see all my runner friends and uh, soak up the skyline, take a, a visit and look at Sitco and just, uh, yeah, soak up the marathon experience and that's, that's being out along the river with all the runners. And how many trips to Dunkin' Donuts? So far? Yes. Five. I got here Friday night, by the way. So, <laughs> would you like to explain your Dunkin' Donuts addiction? <laughs> it's part of the Massachusetts culture. I don't know. It's just, yeah, you won't catch me at Starbucks this weekend, that's for sure. So, I know how dialed in you are when you're racing, especially here, but you mentioned a few minutes ago how special the connection is between the runners and the fans along the course. Can you remember any specific? experiences or interactions that you've had over the years and, and why they felt different than the kinds of things that happened to you at other races compared to Boston? Uh, my first Boston was 2013 and I distinctly remember along the course in Newton on the hills when my, instead of my head looking up, I was suffering and my head was looking down at the ground and I noticed all these chalk drawings that, uh, the neighborhood kids come out and they write messages to the runners. And I remember there being all these messages, and I've never run the Boston Marathon yet, and there's all these messages to me, personal messages along the course as I'm running. And I thought, I better have the race of my life today. This is <laughs> so cool. And then to also just as you get closer to the city, it just gets more intensified. And People are leaning out into the streets trying to get close to you. And I felt like I remember one man distinctly like yelling in my face and almost like spit hitting me. And I'm like, this is the greatest race ever. This is so cool. Um, so those are some of my, my favorite moments. I remember in 2014 as I'm leading a huge pack of women behind me, there was a little kid, I think around mile 10, um, who was on a scooter, like a push scooter. And he was trying to keep up with the lead pack of women. And he looked over at us and he goes, whoa, you guys are going really fast. Like, <laughs> he couldn't keep up with us. And I like chuckled to myself because I was at the time the only um, American in this lead pack and a trail of um, East Africans behind me. And I wonder, was thinking, I wonder if they knew what he just said. And I, was, I laughed out loud, like thinking, this is great. Like trying to soak up. There's little moments. I'm very serious when I race, but there are little moments that just catch my attention. And I'm like, that's a golden moment. I'm going to savor that one. So another tough question. How, how will it feel to you, do you think, if uh, either Desi or, or another American becomes the first American woman to win here since Lisa Rainsberger? I know how badly you want to do that in your career. <sighs> I will have to be the bigger woman on that day. <laughs> I will have to pull up my big girl pants. There will be tears of joy, but also tears of sadness because I, I want to be that person as well. But I think ultimately it will show that I'm capable of it too and it will give me hope. I remember when 
Um, when I was more of a track runner, when Kara Goucher medaled at the World Championships um, the summer before I won my Olympic medal, and seeing her medal gave me the confidence to have the self-belief that I could do it as well. So it's, I may not be the next woman to win Boston, but hopefully I will win Boston at some point. So, um, you know, I think there, for some reason, I'm just not meant to run this year. I don't know why, I'm trying to figure that out, but I'm hoping that there's some delayed gratification and a reason for it down the road. But I will be the first one to give the American woman the biggest hug and kiss. It would be completely inappropriate, but it'll, <laughs> but it'll be well meant, <laughs> well intended. I don't doubt it at all. Okay, so since you were in Boston last, you've had an incredible year, an incredible 12 months, including the Olympics, um, including you, you published a, a book with, with Elise Kopecky, published by Rodale, the parent of, of Runner's World. It's a terrific cookbook. And there's been a lot of other stuff going on in, in your life. You became a foster parent with your husband, Steve. Um, and I also want to ask you about the, the doping-related stuff. Your, your Olympic medal actually got upgraded. That's silver. A, that's a, yes, I silver just, medalist. I, I just oh, got Shalane to say Flanagan. that. <laughs> the first time I got to say that was here. I was, like, in a cab, and... The, this guy was like, so you're a runner? And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, oh, you're pretty good. And I'm like, yeah, so I was pretty good. Um, and he's like, so did you medal in the Olympics? I was like, actually, I did. And he's like, oh, well, what'd you get? And I'm like, a silver medal. I never said it out loud to anyone. And I was like, whoa, that's really awesome. What did he say? Yeah. He was like, right on. Good job. Um, yeah, so that was pretty cool. And then I saw it in print for the first time the other day. I was doing an event with a sponsor, Hotshot, and they're like Olympic silver medalists. I'm like, wow. So. Well, there are so many things wrapped yeah. up in that, right? Mm -hmm. Doping in the sport. I know that there are issues around your Boston Marathon in 2014, right? Yeah. Which, which, where you, you led that race. You mm -hmm. set the pace. You enabled many other women to run as fast as they did. Mm -hmm. And we now know that at least one of them, Rita Jeptu, mm -hmm. um, was, was busted for doping during yeah. that race. One of the things that seems to me that is so difficult for athletes who are in your situation, A, there's suspecting that this is going on or maybe knowing for sure that this is going mm -hmm. on in the moment. But then there's also when you do get upgraded you're mm -hmm. robbed of that experience yeah. of standing on that. You didn't get to stand on the podium and have a silver medal put around your neck. No, you had but to... I did get to stand on the podium. I always feel the worst for the athlete that never stood on the podium at all. Right. So I feel fortunate I was actually on the podium. It's that fourth place finisher that never had that moment. But yes, yeah. So how, how were you informed that <clears throat> you had been upgraded to a silver medal? Through social media. Really? You just heard yeah. it through the grapevine? Well, so two years ago, Chris Chavez, who works at Sports Illustrated, had contacted me and said, listen, um, I've been made aware that uh, the woman um, from 2007, who was a silver medalist, Evelyn Gossi, she's tested positive. And I was celebrating, thinking this is amazing. You know, Kara's going to be upgraded. I'm going to be upgraded. Um, a British woman, Joe Pavey, was going to be upgraded. Lynette Masai behind me was going to be upgraded. So it was huge. And then it was crickets for two years. And then I just found out a couple weeks ago that it was official. And, but yet I was never contacted by anyone official. It was like runner's world letting me know, which is great. I appreciate it. But yeah, we're here for you it. would think that like I would be contacted by the USOC or WADA, the world anti-doping. Um, I had to have my uh, friend and an agent reach out to try to get some clarification. Like, is this real? Like, I don't want to celebrate and then it to not be true. So we did get a confirmation email saying, yes, they've changed and update, updated all of the results and she's extracted from the results. So to me, I don't physically have the silver medal in my hands. I don't know if I ever will, to be honest. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know if they go to Turkey and take it from her out of her home. I'll go do it. But... <laughs> They haven't asked me to yet. I don't know if they have extra like medals just hanging out in China, like from the Olympics. I don't know how it works, so. It is kind of crazy, the lack of clarity around all these issues. As an it athlete, is. What is it, how does that feel? Um, it makes it hard to kind of trust the system a little bit when you just don't feel like um, they're protecting the hard work that I've 
I've done and what I'm trying to do. And I just feel like there's a little distrust right now. Um, I hope that that changes, but I don't feel like I can totally trust the system, unfortunately. Did you suspect during that Olympic race that there was some performance enhancing going on in the field? Yes, yeah. Um, the, for better or worse, the elite athletes tend to know what's real and what's not real. We study the sport. We know what athletes are truly capable of. Yes, there can be some great performances that um, can just ha athletes can have these huge breakthrough moments. I, I believe that. But there are some that when you when I say it looks unbelievable, that means it's unbelievable. Um, and so I knew on that day that. I was a silver medalist. I knew that when I crossed the finish line. I didn't have anything to validate it, and I couldn't say that. It's inappropriate, but I knew that day. Well, congratulations on your silver medal. Congratulations on the bronze that you earned anyway, despite yeah. all that, and on being <laughs> yes. upgraded. Sorry it happened the way that it did. And I also want to say congratulations on, on Rio, the Rio Olympics. Mm -hmm. You ran a phenomenal Olympic marathon, and I know how proud you were are of that effort and of the team. Amy Craig and Desi Linden were there yeah. as well. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and, and explain how perhaps that may have been just as important and fulfilling to you, even though you didn't win a medal in the yeah. Rio Games? M maybe at, I will at what, some point. You, right, what, what time is it? I yeah, know. What? We'll talk in 10 years, we'll see. But um, yeah, it was, it was my fourth Olympics and I, it was a very, very special Olympics to me. I trained with Amy Craig, um, and she had just joined my training group within the last year. And we had an unbelievable buildup. We pushed each other to prime physical fitness. We were ready to go. She and I both had PRs leading up into the Olympics. I set an American record here in a 10K just on these roads um, leading into it. And we honestly felt, yeah, we're in position to medal. And we felt like any of us, any the three of us, any of us could be on the podium. So that's an exciting feeling to get on the start line and know that you have that kind of potential. I won't lie, I was a little nervous, still as traumatized from my Olympic trials with the heat and suffering so poorly. So I will say, as confident as I was in my physical preparation, I was also still really nervous to get back on the start line after having suffered in the heat um, in LA. But it was an incredible experience and to turn around and see Desi come in right behind me and then soon thereafter Amy, it was maybe the best feeling I've, I've ever experienced. So in all seriousness, do, do you have suspicions in the back of your mind that maybe there was some performance enhancement going on in that race as well and the results may change? Yeah, well, recently um, the gold medalist, um, Soom Gong, just tested positive out of competition. And so um, I don't know how what will happen with her Olympic gold medal. Um, they could retroactively um, take it away, but she just tested positive in February. And after the race, Des said, well, you know, let's just wait and see, I'm going to guess that two women in this race, um, she's like, I think there'll be two positive tests in the next year. Well, we already have one, unfortunately. So um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so. so last question about doping, because it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's a topic that is certainly not what any of us want to focus on, mm -hmm. right? We want to focus on all the other aspects of, of competition and athleticism. But is there anything from the, from the athlete's point of view that you think the average runner or the average follower of the sport just doesn't realize what, why it is, whether it's how prevalent it is mm -hmm. or the, the corrosive effects that it can have on the sport? Yeah. I think how it affects um, a lot of the elite athletes the most is kind of some of these maybe even fringe athletes that are trying to, and I, I say fringe, but they're trying to make the Olympic final, for example. Someone who's in a 1500 or an 800, and there's all these rounds at the Olympics, and you know they don't make the Olympic final because maybe there's some dopers or cheaters in the race. They don't make that final. Well, this athlete then says to himself, why am I doing this? I, I'm not making the final. I'm not, I'm not achieving my goals. So there's a turning point in the athlete's mind where there's not enough um, reward coming out of the actual effort they're putting into it. And so then they quit the sport. 
when they shouldn't because they really are good and they do deserve to be in the final. And they need just one moment. It only takes sometimes just one moment in one race to catapult and bring that athlete to another level and have that self-confidence and self-belief and these breakthrough moments for athletes. So the dopers are being exceptionally selfish in that it is not allowing certain great athletes to continue because they don't believe they're good enough. And that's what makes me the most sad. So yes, they're stealing medals, um, but they're also just, they're, they're taking away dreams and goals from other people. Yeah. All right, changing gears a little bit. Aside from the injury prevention exercises and, and all of those really important prehab and rehab things, what have you learned throughout your running career that you think is going to help you continue to compete in the years going forward that maybe you wish you had known five, 10 years ago? Is it, is it nutrition related? That's a good one. Yeah. Yes. As soon as I started to tackle the longer distances in the marathon and the older I'm getting, I realized that nutrition is essential. In college, I would pop open some Pop-Tarts or, you know, some cereal and slap some peanut butter on it and call it a day. Um, I can't get away with that anymore, um, especially not training for the marathon. And I find that the right foods to fuel me make me happier. I enjoy my training more. I'm not hangry all the time. And uh, I've learned how to cook for myself, which is huge. And how did that lead to run fast, eat slow? Did, did your feelings about nutrition form and then you decided you wanted to do a book with Elise or did all of that kind of happen in tandem? The idea for this cookbook was born over my kitchen table. Uh, Elise had been living in Switzerland and um, realized that how the Swiss were eating was actually making her healthier. She had suffered from athletic amenorrhea basically almost, you know, most of her college life and then post-college and was told that maybe she'd never have a baby. And you guys were and friends and teammates at yes, North Carolina. Sorry, yeah, ba- yes. So we were friends and teammates. We've been friends for 17 years now. But over a dinner at my house, she'd just come back from culinary school in New York. So while we were having this delicious meal that we had cooked together, um, I expressed my goals of trying to train for my fourth Olympics, but that I felt depleted and hungry all the time and just... Um, didn't know if I had the energy to do it. And she expressed her desire to start a family and how she felt like changing her diet while she lived in Switzerland really made an impact on her health and her life. And she started sharing some ideas of how I could adjust my diet and how I was eating to have more energy and to feel better. And it was kind of information that was kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, you know, she said to incorporate more fats and maybe that I need a little bit more butter in my life. And I'm like, what? You're kidding me, right? Like butter? And she's like, she explained why. And we explained in the book why butter is so great and all these healthy fats. And we grew up in this low fat, non fat um, era and come to find out I was doing it all wrong. And so she worked with me on adjusting my diet. And I tried out some new recipes that she had given me. And I said, Elise, we have to share this information. There's so much misinformation and runners eating maybe too many bars and falling victim to the quick, easy fixes. And I'm like, we need to get people back in the kitchen and we need to get them to cook for themselves and fuel themselves. And so that's how the idea was born. And now we're actually working on our second book. So, yeah. Congrats. All right, and the other really big thing that has happened in your life in the past year is you've become a foster mom. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't even really know about this until very recently. How did that come mm-hmm. about? And you said to me backstage that you kind of were keeping it a little bit on the, on the QT. Mm-hmm. How come? Well, um, I was just kind of being respectful of, of their privacy. Um, it was kind of happened organically. I have a teammate, Andrew Bumbelow. He and his wife have done foster care for a while. And it's typically been younger children, um, infants and toddlers. And over the summer, he and his wife had sent out an email to the entire team, my Bowerman Track Club team, and said, you know, there's these two girls. They're identical twins. They're 17 years old. They're seniors in high school. And they need um, some care for the next year to get through high school. And is anyone willing... Um, to step up and help them out. They're track runners. 
And it's amazing how the track world just is connected in the running world because I don't know if these two amazing young girls would be in my home if it weren't for the connection of running, which blows my mind. Um, but I guess the, the Department of Human Services reached out to Andrew and his wife thinking, oh, they're runners. Maybe they know some runners. And so it just kind of happened organically, and I, I saw the email, read it, and I immediately sent it to my husband. I was training in Park City, getting ready for the Rio Olympics, and I said, I think we need to do this. And as soon as we decided we were going to do it, I was like, oh, my gosh, what did we just do? <laughs> like, two 17-year-old girls, like, whoa, this is a lot. Um, you know, thinking maybe an infant would be easier, but we're going to go straight into the teens. Oh, my God. But... It's been one of the best decisions I've ever made, and I'm, I'm happy that I had the, the courage to do it because they've, they've changed our lives. Um, you know, we like to think we help them, but I think they help us more. Um, but they're incredible. They're, they're attached at the hip. They finish each other's sentences. They're the cutest things, and they love, love track. They're, they think the 200's really long, so... <laughs> It's like, everyone's like, oh, you guys got this running connection. I'm like, well, yeah, but like 200 is like far for them. But um, so, um, you know, I show up to the track meets and I'm there and I support them and cheer them on. They just ran in Eugene this weekend. They ran the four by 100 and they texted me as soon as they were finished. And they're like, we're fifth in the state in the four by one. And so I'm like, right on. This is great. So we've had, we've had a blast. So how have they changed your, your life and Steve's life. You said that you feel like you're helping them, but they're helping you probably more. How so? Yeah, for sure. I think um, they've given us a tremendous amount of purpose. They challenge us. They force us to be better people, I think. I think we are constantly thinking, well, we are role models within our home. We have to constantly be setting an example. And it's it's hard to, um, when you take in young adults that, you know, you haven't influenced, you know, they're 17, I haven't had any influence from any of those prior years and to all of a sudden to try to make an impact and trying to earn that trust. I think that's the biggest thing is working on them trusting and opening up to us. And it's funny, I find that the best time to actually get to talk to them and have them open up, I call it windshield time. <laughs> it's when I pick them up from school and I swear there's something about not having to look someone in the face and in the eye, and they just like open up to me. So like road trips are great, or just being in the car, they open up and share a lot of great, great things with me. And I'm just trying to be there to, to help them, direct them, so that they can be accountable and take charge of their lives and what they want to do next. Windshield time, that's very <laughs> smart. You're very wise for a very early parent. Yes, I'm impressed. Okay. Well, congratulations on that as Thank well, you. Shalane. A lot, a lot going on. Um, do we have any questions from, from the audience? Yes. Hi, my name is Tracy. I'm originally from Ohio, but recently moved out to Prescott, Arizona. And my question, I've been training out there for about four months now, and this is my first Boston, by the way. Uh, thank you. Um, my question is, how is the elevation training going to help me here in Boston, running so, it? What is Prescott at? You're, is it an altitude? It's over a mile high. We're at 5,400 feet. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, as you know, a lot of uh, the East Africans live and train at high altitude. And I don't live at altitude, but I go and do altitude stints to prepare for the Boston Marathon. I'll go to Flagstaff. You just have to go up the road a little bit further. Yeah. Um, so, there are definitely some physiological changes that the body makes when you go to altitude, um, you'll be producing more red blood cells, um, so that's a benefit. You're going to feel, hopefully, amazing because the actual boost in the physiological changes um, are very beneficial for running. Typically, when you go up to altitude, I, I call it like breathing through a straw, yeah. and it, it's really challenging, and it's a lot of hard work, but the hope is when you come down, running at sea level feels much easier. And be careful in those first bit of the race, the first half. I always say use the head and the second half use the heart. So um, hopefully you feel amazing, but lock into the pace that you know that you're supposed to be running. Um, don't maybe get too carried away just because you feel so unbelievable with those extra red blood cells. Everyone's jealous in here. They're like, what? <laughs> but yeah, so it should, it sh you should feel great. Thank you. Good luck.
Hi, my name is Riley Pistolnik, and I'm from Boca Raton, Florida. And at what age did you dream of becoming an Olympian? Yeah, um, I think I, my parents were both runners. And I didn't really know how good they were, though. Uh, apparently, my mom was like a world record holder in the marathon. Um, neither of them went to the Olympics, though. But I always knew I wanted to be a runner and a great runner. I don't think I really started dreaming of the Olympics until I started running, though. And so that was probably age like 13, 14 is when I started to get into running. And I got into running because we would have these physical fitness tests in school and I would beat all the boys. And I was like, this is a really cool sport. I get to beat boys. So um, I don't remember like a distinct moment being like, I want to be an Olympian, but I knew I always wanted to be a really good runner and beat as many boys as possible. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, next question. Hi, uh, Jeremy Rosenthal from uh, Bloomington, Indiana. Um, going back to your Olympic, uh, the Olympic trials experience, I think um, it was really inspiring to see, you know, how you and Amy worked together and just um, the drive that you had the last few miles. So question is kind of two parts. What was kind of going through your mind to get you through those last few miles, as difficult as it was? And um, what advice would you have for somebody um, maybe tomorrow when things are getting a little difficult um, towards the end? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think the first key to getting through the tough parts is knowing that running is painful, like admitting that in the start line, like running is hard and running is painful. And there's going to be a moment where it's kind of like this fight or flight and you hope that you fight. Like that's what I'm always most nervous about on the start line is like, am I going to have what it takes in that moment, in that decisive moment when everything accumulates and it's like crucial to make the right decision and to push through the pain and not succumb to it and let into it? Because it's always easy like, oh, I could just, I could just back off the pace right now and I'd feel a lot better. But instead, I'm going to keep pushing and I'm going to feel really awful and how, how am I going to handle that? How am I going to get through it? Um, and I don't think I have one technique for it. I, and, you know, there are some days I'm better at it than others, but I always look back at my training, and in training I always practice that. I practice pushing through the pain. I practice visualizing what it's going to feel like and how am I going to respond to that. So I think the key is to practice it so that on race day, it's just innate. You just do it. You don't have these second guesses and these doubts in your head like, oh gosh, should I or shouldn't I? Um, but I, I think when it gets really tough, I start to think of other people and the reasons why I'm here and why I'm doing it. And I think of the people that have taken a lot of time to help me. And to me, that's, that's so motivating. And everyone has different reasons for why they're out here doing it. And for me, on the day in, in LA, um, here I was going for my, my fourth Olympics, which is very meaningful to me, and I really, really wanted to be in Rio. And most importantly, I wanted to be in Rio with Amy, and I wanted to help her prepare. And over the last three miles, all I could think is, like, I can't let her down. Um, she had a rough spot in the race, and I talked her through it. We talked through it. And then, what do you know, as soon as she got through her rough patch, I hit a really bad rough patch. And she talked me through it. And I, I told her, I was like, Amy, I'm not doing well. And I was like, I think you just need to go. Like, take off. Like, I'll, I'll get through it. And she looked at me, and she just knew it was really bad. Because I never, ever say anything like that. Like, even in training, I never complain. And so she knew for me to say that, that that was really, I was having a hard time. And she amazingly stuck by me. I don't know how many people would do that. I don't, you know, like how many people in that moment would sacrifice their race and their dreams potentially for someone else like that, for an Olympic moment, for an Olympic birth. She could have potentially tripped or hurt herself in those last few miles when she was feeling great. As many people saw, she was like dancing around the road. She was having the race of her life. She could have run a PR that day, but she didn't because she was there helping me. And I think it comes back to a little bit that I, you know, my coach and I took Amy on when she was having a rough patch in her career, and I think she felt like she owed it to me. She didn't, but I think she felt on that day, well, Shalane took me under her wing. She's helping me make this Olympic team, so I owe it to her to help her in this moment. 
So it's amazing. You do one nice thing and then it's reciprocated. And I think that's what Amy did for me that day. And over those last three miles, every fiber in my body wanted to stop. I wanted to just throw myself off the side of the road. I wanted something to like come and hit me, like some comet and be like, you're done. You can't run. Yeah. Like I wanted just something like a sign of God, like that I should not be doing this because it was excruciatingly painful. And, um, it, you know, when you're in that kind of a, a pain zone, like there wasn't like a lot of thinking, but the only thing is just one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. And as long as I felt like Amy was there and I felt like I had a string attached a little bit and I was so afraid at any moment when she left me that it was just going to break and I was going to crumble. And she let me hang on to her like that until one mile to go. And the only reason why she left me is because her husband yelled at her to go. She was going to stay the entire time. And thank God he did because she deserved to win that race. She prepared. She could have run much faster on that day. But it got me to a point, okay, one mile, Shalane, you can do anything for the next five and a half, six minutes, right? Like, you can do that. So people are laughing. As much as I was dying, I think I still ran like a 6'10 mile, which, yeah, I, I felt like I was running 20-minute mile. It felt horrendous, but um, it's a moment that I'll never, I'll never forget, and I don't know if I can ever repay her. Hopefully, I can at some point. Yeah, that was a great moment. We probably have time for one more question before we begin our quiz. Hi, Shelley. My name's Scott. I'm from South Jersey. Um, I had a question about... I guess doping and cheating in general. I think cheating has been uh, in the news a lot recently at the elite level with the doping, but also at the amateur level with people sneaking their way into Boston using bib mules and all kinds of other uh, course cutting. Yeah. Uh, but I guess at the, at the elite level, do you think there are enough deterrence slash consequences in place, or do you think the risks are always going to outweigh, or uh, the rewards will always outweigh the risks? Yeah, I think that's the biggest problem and why it's not deterring enough athletes from cheating is because the slap on the wrist is you just can't compete. None of the prize money is forced to be given back. Um, maybe not even the medals. Um, they also get to keep up until that point of when they're caught, they get to keep all those titles. So say, you know, someone who doped won Boston 10 years ago, well, they're still the Boston champion. They could have been doping. They just didn't get caught during that time potentially. Um, and there's not enough slaps on the wrist by the surrounding entourage of those athletes. So you have these coaches and these managers who are in my mind, somehow aiding these athletes. I don't believe these athletes are just doing it on their own. I think these coaches and managers know about it. If I were to cheat and dope, I think my coach would know. He'd be like, why are all of a sudden you so, why are you so amazing now? Like you were turd yesterday. Why are you so great now? He would know, he would know. And so what I'm seeing is though, it needs to just be more than just the athlete. I think the athlete and the entourage all need to be affected. Everyone who's associated with that athlete needs to then have some type of penalty, you know, whether they're also taken out of the sport for a few years because they are associated in supporting that. So, so yes, my answer is there's not enough being done clearly to deter the athletes from cheating. Okay, I'm sorry we didn't get to all those questions, but now we are going to do our first ever... Oh, no. We don't even have a name for this thing. Is this multiple choice? Yes. Oh, thank so, God. So, first of all, Scott Douglas, our contributing editor who is the resident genius about Boston Marathon trivia and other things has come up with these questions and he's going to ask the questions to Bart and Shalane and let's pull someone from the audience. Is there an audience member who would like to take part in this quiz? Come on up. Hey, what's your name? Jill Stanley. Okay, so Scott will ask the question and it's multiple choice. Okay? And if you think you know the correct answer, raise your hand. I'll decide who raised his or her hand oh, first. And there will be prizes at the end, depending on how well you do. And again, okay. this is all Boston Marathon specific trivia. First oh, question. Where did Bill Rogers get the shirt he wore during his first Boston win in 1975? Wow. A, it was the race shirt from the 1974 Boston Marathon. B, at the Runner's World pop-up store. 
C, he found it in a trash can. D, he borrowed it from another runner because he forgot to pack one. Oh, I think you... C, he found it in a trash can. That is correct. correct. Hey, ding, 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 ding. Jill, the ringer from the crowd. Bill, he found a, it was a mesh shirt, and he hand wrote Greater Boston Track Club on it, and he broke 210. He was a little better off than when he won the next three times. He had a Bill Rogers singlet on. Yeah, so when you yeah. leave here, check the trash cans on the way out. Yeah. Could be winning tomorrow. <laughs> All right, Celine, Jill's got one up okay. on us. After his fourth Boston win in 1948, what did Gerard Coty do before speaking to the press? A, pass out. B, have a drink and a smoke. C, eat what was then the traditional post-race meal of beef stew. D, autograph copies of the runner's roll that he was on the cover of. That's got to be C, the, the stew. Anyone else? <laughs> Shalane, would you like to steal? I like the answer B. B, so. B Gerard Carty of Canada. He won Boston in 1940, 43, 44, and 48. After his fourth win, he told the press, gentlemen, gentlemen, one beer, one cigar, then we talk about the race, eh? All right. All right. Good one. Last one. What did Joan Benoit do halfway through the 1983 Boston Marathon? Oh, she knows it even before the end. (laughs) Red Sox hat. She was wearing a Red Sox hat. Halfway through. A, stop to tie her shoe. B, stop for an interview with Runner's World. C, throw up. D, pass the halfway mark faster than what was then the world record for the half marathon. Ooh. D. Is it D? D, D. yes. Wow. Shalane, Uh, trivia queen. Got two of them. So she passed halfway in 108.34, which was about 30 seconds faster than her own half marathon record at the time. She won in 222.34. And And there's only one. Which I beat. Yeah. Yeah. And that remains the third fastest time by a U.S. woman on the course, the fastest Shalane. by Shalane Flanagan. <laughs> All right. Second fastest is Desi. Is Desi. Desi is the second fastest, and then Joni the fastest. Thank you for joining us here, Shalane. Good job winning the quiz, and thanks for doing the interview. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was marathoner Shalane Flanagan at the Runner's World pop-up store on Boylston Street on Easter morning in Boston. And by the way, Shalane's parents were both star runners. In 1971, her mom, Cheryl, set a women's world record for the marathon with a 2.49.40. Her dad, Steve, has a marathon PR of 2.18. Running really does run in that family. Now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and digital editor Chris Michael. Okay, so we're through the Boston Marathon. We are through the London Marathon. In a way, that kind of signals the end of the big spring marathon season. And with that, um, we have Chris Michael. We're going to talk about, um, first, the London Marathon. And there were fast times in two different respects, but on the elite women's side, Um, a dominating performance by Mary Katani this past weekend. Yeah, we have a new world record for a women's only marathon. Mary Katani ran a 217.01 and has taken the uh, mantle from Paula Radcliffe, who set that record in 2005. So it's been 12 years and Paula Radcliffe's record was 217.42. Yeah, and you said women's only record. I know when I first saw the headline on Sunday, I was like, what are we talking about there? Yeah, it's a women's record. But there, there's a there's a difference right. to the overall world record that Paula Radcliffe holds. In 2003, also at the London Marathon, uh, Paula Radcliffe was in a race paced by men. They had mm-hmm. uh, male pacers at that point, and she set uh, 2.15.25. But I don't want to take too much away from Mary Katani's amazing achievement. She ran an uh, average of 5.14 per mile yeah. and went sub-5 uh, towards the end as she approached the finish line. Yeah, not the first time we've heard Mary's name winning a big race. She's won London three times now. 
she won New York three times in a row the past three years. Yeah. So um, not out of nowhere for her, obviously, and inching closer to the overall world record mark and doing a great job in London. And and actually, that's another way that she's uh, sort of taking the mantle from Paula Radcliffe, because Paula also won both New York and London three times. Yeah, so congratulations to Mary Katani of Kenya. Um, the one thing she didn't do um, in this race, uh, she didn't wear a costume. That's um, true. We always bring this up in the kick. At the London Marathon, Guinness World Records, they're on site. They validate records on the spot, so you don't have to go through a crazy process to get a world record like Megan Keita did with her hot dog costume. We've documented that several times on the podcast. Um, but 40 world records, we just want to mention, were set for Guinness on Sunday in 40 London. 40 wacky world records, 40 I would say dumbfounding <laughs> world records of people putting themselves through weird costumes just to get their get a little plaque with Which, their Guinness record. And I have to say that, I mean, some of these are astounding just not only because the, the costumes are funny or strange, and, and there were those, but also because some of these um, <laughs> some of these things were really uh, feats. Of strength, in of a way. Of strength, yeah. I think one of my favorites was, um, you know, Ben Blows, who who just ran the fastest marathon carrying a household appliance. What? Uh, yeah, you have to see the picture. Guinness World Records Twitter account has a picture, but he You're bearing the lead. What was the appliance? He was he was carrying a tumble dryer on his back. And I, I have to oh, say Oh, that's not heavy. I have to say, you know, well, it's it's definitely less heavy than the washer, but I can't imagine carrying that 10 feet, much less 26.2 miles. Um, and and the contraption that he has is amazing. He has these these sort of big padded shoulder things, which you know are, are sort of bracing his shoulders, and he has the whole thing mounted onto his back. And wow! He, he Otherwise, your clavicle will break. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I also like the um, dichotomy of a, a few of these. We had a woman who ran the fastest marathon dressed as a witch, and and right after that in the story is a uh, fastest marathon dressed as a nun. We have the um, fastest five-person team together. They dressed as the Scooby-Doo mystery machine. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, they did it in six hours, 17 minutes, and 26 seconds. And uh, a guy named Mark Jenner, fastest marathon carrying a 100-pound pack, six hours, 47 minutes wow. for him. I don't know if that would be easier or harder <laughs> than carrying an appliance. I don't know. We're going to have to have a race off with these two. I think my favorite, though, was um, uh, the fastest marathon dressed as a padlock. So that's a, that is a world record that has now been set. It was a 359.40. It's pretty fast. It I don't is. know what that – we haven't seen the picture of that one, so um, we can't uh, verify how difficult that costume would be to run in. Right. Was it a full-size metal padlock? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How heavy was that? Um, so, yeah, definitely go to our website, runnersworld.com slash audio. Um, on our episode page, we'll have – a link to the story with some of our favorite Guinness records set at the 2017 London Marathon. Um, and we didn't have a kick last week coming back from Boston, mm -hmm. um, but one story was really a viral hit for us. I think you actually found the original photo of this guy when it went across the wire, and then um, we decided to look into it a little bit more. D describe this photo. Well, I, honestly, I feel like he should have been at London based on the way he was <laughs> yeah. dressed uh, and going for a world record, but he wasn't. Um, but this was a, a photo of a man, uh, Glenn Rains. He's a 50-year-old barefoot runner from Southern California, and he was uh, dressed quite clearly as a caveman. So when we say dressed as a caveman, where you said barefoot, what, what else he signifies was, he's a caveman? He was bare, bare-legged, bare-chested, <laughs> The only things that he was really wearing, he was wearing a, a loincloth that he mm -hmm. sewed himself um, and a matching uh, phone holder, which I thought was really <laughs> wonderful. An, he, an update to the caveman look. Yeah. He was wearing a wig with long caveman-like hair. Not as scraggly as it could have been, but, but continue. But there. And, and he was also wearing, and I think this was really the kicker, uh, he was wearing a necklace, and, and this is true, made from 
what he said is the bones from my husband's mouth. Yeah, Kit Fox got the exclusive on that one. Yeah. That, You're going to have to read the story to see why he did that, but it's... It, the thing that I just want to note was that his husband thought that it was sweet. So it was... <laughs> it, they weren't taken by force or anything, but it was still a, a insane and, and a little bit strange uh, detail in an otherwise very amazing kind of story. Yeah. Um, other stuff about Glenn, it's not the first time he has dressed as a caveman for a run. He debuted it in 2011. He said that during several races, including this year's Boston, he, as he told Kit, he frequently releases a caveman cry as he passes water stations. I'm, I'm very sorry we didn't get audio on that. Um, and uh, to top it all off, um, he was really fast, too. He did a three-hour, 40-minute, 43-second Marathon, and in the photo you see him like happily crossing the finish line, giving a fist bump to the guy next to him, who looks like a normal runner. Right. But uh, Glenn doing a great job as a caveman, and we're glad to tell his interesting and unique story on the site. So, uh, speaking of fast people, mm-hmm. uh, we had also an, a record uh, that yeah. was recently set. A right? different record, not marathon distance at the mile distance. Um, we were kind of tracking this um, on January 2nd. Um, a guy named Patrick McGregor, he's an assistant track coach at Samford University. He went on a quest to set a, uh, a new streak of sub five-minute miles in a row. So, okay, so what was this streak? Yeah, he had the better 104 days of running a sub five minute mile. So 105 days in a row of running a blistering fast mile. The reason he wanted to do this, his high school coach, Devin Hind, he set this record mm-hmm. back in 1979. So he wanted to go after that himself. And and so, okay, so Devin Hines ran 104 straight five minute miles. Exactly. Or sub five miles. And McGregor, he's 26. He actually, he broke it on April 16th. So just recently, doing that sub five-minute mile in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, his coach, Devin Hind, he was actually there to time him for it. So that was a a nice little... Passing of the baton, as it were. A nice little passing of the baton, yeah, Yeah. except they probably didn't have a baton. Um, (laughs) um, He ran that last one in uh, four minutes, 12 seconds. That was actually his fastest overall mile that he ran of the whole feet. But you were impressed by another one oh, yeah. of his uh, miles. Well, I, the, you know, reading the story, uh, I, the thing that I think impressed me the most was that at one point he clocked a 449 with a 103 degree fever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and then kept going. I, I think we say, like, don't run with a fever like that. Right. But, you know, if you're in the middle of a impressive streak like that, you have to go after it. Apparently. Well, you can't quit. And, and speaking of can't quit, he, he apparently hasn't stopped since he broke the record. He already increased it to 108. We, we haven't followed up with him since we first put the story on the website. But if he's, you know, a week later in, he's already at 115 days in a row. Yeah. So yeah. what's so, the over under on how long he keeps this going? A year? Do you think he takes a break in a year or do you think he stops? I don't know. I would say over 200, but I don't, I don't know if I'm willing to say past that. But I think he'll keep going. If he's willing to run with a 103-degree fever, he, he might he might go – I'm going to say over 275. Okay. Yeah. Um, Chris, you're going out to the Big Sur Marathon this weekend. Good luck. Um, if you love stories like this that we do on The Kick – Check out the Runner's World warm-up daily newsletter. Go to runnersworld.com slash newsletters. You write up the warm-up every day and give us a little insight into the running world. So thank you for that. Thank you, Brian. Okay, before we go, I just want to thank all of you who submitted your Why I Started Running stories for the special Boston bonus episode of Human Race, our sibling podcast. It was really hard to choose from the dozens of fantastic submissions we received. And we are so grateful to everyone who took the time to tell us their stories. If you haven't had a chance to yet, please take a listen to that show. Again, it's the Boston bonus episode of Human Race. Okay, that's it for our show this week. Thanks, as always, for all your comments and ratings. We are always using your feedback to create a better show. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson 
Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Be sure to join us next week for my interview with Nike CEO Mark Parker. Mark doesn't give many interviews, so it was a unique opportunity to talk to the man who oversees what is arguably the most influential company in the sport of running. We talked about the upcoming effort to break the two-hour marathon barrier and about Mark's own pretty fascinating running life. It was a great conversation. You won't want to miss it. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.